you need to have a fundamental framework, a legal framework, to set up the boundaries, to set up the rules,、um, and that's the first stage. And China has、uh, kind of completed this first stage from nothing to a generally robust framework. When you say this is the Instagram of China, that is YouTube of China, kind of all this kind of talk missed the point now because China has been already、uh, growing so sophisticated that. A lot of the successful businesses in, in successful platforms in China are, are pretty much made for China. But you know, in time and time again, we've been observing this one key thing about China is that you know Chinese market is really huge and it's huge enough,、um, and there are a lot of、uh, you know different lower tier cities and different、um, you know areas that offers huge growth. To the、uh, different players, and it actually doesn't make sense to have one company to take the whole market. Welcome to the Jingzhou River Radio Podcast, a part of the GR Media Outlet, and your go-to podcast for anything about Chinese current events. I'm your host Jiang Jiang, the founder of Ginger River Review, a newsletter that focuses on reporting the priorities of both the leadership and the general public in China, and views you do not normally see from mainstream English language media. Our newsletter and podcast covered a wide range of themes, including Sino-U.S. relations, financial and commercial news, tech industry developments, and Chinese culture hot topics. Our newsletter subscribers include government officials, diplomats, think tankers, professors, journalists, business decision makers, analysts, and other professionals with keen interest in China. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, go to www.gingerriver.com and sign up to join our community of avid China watchers. Now let's dive into our podcast show today. The Chinese government has put out a new document that spells out 20 measures for beefing up its data use and data economy. According to the document, China will develop basic data systems in four areas, including data circulation and transactions, data income distribution that promotes fair compensation, data element governance, and centralized planning and policy support. The policy's main focus is to promote the compliant, efficient flow and utilization of data. And to empower the real economy, the government defines data as a new factor of production and the bedrock of digitalization, networking, and intelligence. And sees having solid data systems in place as crucial to the country's growth and security. So, what does this all mean for the development of China's data industry? How is big data helping business decision makers conduct in-depth analysis of business performance in China? Is there anything that alternative data-driven business intelligence can tell us about China's economic recovery from the pandemic? Join me on our podcast first episode today to help us all better understand China's growing data economy. Is Robert Wu Wu Mianqing? Robert is not only a longtime friend of mine, but also the CEO of one of the leading alternative data companies in China, named Big One Lab, Baiguan Kejie, which was founded in 2016. Robert and I went to the same middle school and high school. He then went to the McAllister College in the United States and the University of Hong Kong. 
Robert had been working in investment, finance, and tech sector for years before he became a leader of Big One Lab. It's been an honor to witness his journey to becoming a successful entrepreneur and thought leader in China's big data industry. Hi, Robert. Welcome to Ginger River Radio, and thank you so much for being the guest of our first episode. Hi, Zhang Zhang. Hi, everyone.、Um, I feel so honored and excited to be the first guest in this podcast.、Um, and you know, Zhang Zhang, I you know I think you already know that I've also been a avid reader of your newsletter.、Um, it's really, I think it's done an incredible job of filling the gap. Uh, between the the two worlds,、um, a lot of you know high quality contents、uh, are being translated and and broadcast to the the global audience.、Um, that that's there's really some very interesting work they've been doing. So、uh, so you know, I actually also have a question for you.、Uh, I know you've been doing that newsletter for a long time,、uh, but、uh, you know when and how and why do you you know think about having this podcast? Thank you, Robert.、Uh, it's wonderful to have you. You know, I I've been thinking about creating a podcast show for a long time. In 2016, when I complete my MBA studies, I thought it would be cool to invite my classmates to share their post MBA career and life experiences. So that was my initial idea. And、uh, even though I have switched to the media industry, I was I was still thinking about creating a, a podcast. And、uh, since I launched the Ginger River Review newsletter last year, I've got tons of new ideas for for potential podcast topics. And、uh, I realized that interviewing friends and experts from different industries would be a great way to share unique perspectives from China with a worldwide audience. With so many of my buddies and、uh, former classmates doing interesting things and speaking fluent English, it would be a shame not to share their stories. And plus, creating a podcast is just something that I'm really passionate about. I love meeting new people, hearing their stories, and spreading their knowledge and experiences to others. So I went ahead and launched this show, and I'm stoked that you are my first guest. The first one, you know, is always the toughest. So I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks. Likewise,、uh, I mean, I echo a lot of what you are having in mind. Your 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 dream and your goal here is really, you know, there's definitely a lot of gap to be filled between the two worlds,、um, and and it's definitely very important in, in the current uh, environment. Um, your work is really much appreciated. Yeah, and、uh, you know the Chinese data industry is booming, and the plan of 20 steps for boosting the country's data use and data economy offers a wealth of fresh, important information. But before we go deeper into that, as China has declared major and decisive victory in COVID response, why don't we just start with our review of China's economy recovery from the epidemic through alternative data-driven business intelligence? And、uh, Robert, could you share with us what your company is doing to help decision makers to to, to transform the wide-ranging data into thought-provoking insights? Yeah, that's definitely、um, the, our day-to-day job and the the the, the key part of、uh, the value that we provide for our clients. So we we as you just mentioned, we were actually founded about you know six years ago, and you know over the last few years, we've been really helping、um, you know institutional investors, corporates around the world, but also in China to 
you know, keep track of uh, data and to understand the, the the trends and nuances that are coming out of the the, the, the data. And it has been, and especially for the last few years, because of all the COVID-related, um, uh, you know, uh, movements, trends, and also the recent uh, kind of easing down of the COVID, um, the just our 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 clients, our users have been paying more and more attention to um, to you know insights from the data perspective. So, um, and I feel really glad to just to share some of, uh, you know, what we have, um, especially recently. Um, so, for example, uh, among our various data sets, we've been covering a offline uh, kind of restaurant and dining uh, chains of um, uh, networks of at least uh, 100,000 um, different locations. So, uh, so, so actually, you know, we, we've been able to look at the recovering, uh, the recovery offline in the offline space in the dining space, and you know, quite interestingly, this is uh, you know tracking the uh, the the kind of COVID and both COVID and post COVID trends across the cities quite well. So, for example, uh, we've been seeing that uh, you know offline consumption in the restaurants. So, for example, in Beijing, uh, was actually the the first among the first uh, to kind of recover from their lowest point. So, for example, in as early as you know late December, we've been seeing the worst has already you know passed for uh, for Beijing, while for some other places where the COVID started later, um, they the the recovering point comes from around uh, you know early to mid January. Around the Spring Festival period, and since late January and to you know current point, we've been seeing a a, a very robust recovery across the uh, across the cities and across the regions we've been covering, as reflected in offline dining space. Um, and it seems um, it, 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 there are there are being some at sometimes double digits, um, you know, MOM and Week, week over week um, kind of recovery. So, so it's um, it's highly uh, it's highly encouraging actually um, to see this 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 type of recovery on the ground. And uh, uh, just to be clear, uh, how do you get the data from uh, the offline um, catering or restaurants dining sector? Oh, so you know we you know one of our key uh, kind of work. In, in China is to understand uh, you know the data quality the types of data in different verticals and transform them into um, in, uh, research products inside products that our clients can understand so in this specific case uh, we've been working with um, these kind of SaaS companies SaaS providers that are serving the dining sector so so for example um, the, you know, when you come to a restaurant in China, now most of the cases, you don't actually ask for waiter or waitresses for you to order. Uh, there's usually a QR code on the table, and the clients just scan the QR code and input what they want. And this is basically a kind of electronic manual service. So, so for this kind of companies, they do get to record the, um, the, the, the kind of uh, item to item data. And we kind of, you know, productize over that kind of data, and we label them on onto the different brands, 
and we actually use that data to look at, say, you know, beverages and beer brands and their performances. Um, so it's been really powerful tool to look at the offline consumption space. And now, you know, during, you know, besides the brand level data, we are also able to do aggregate more macro level data. Um, and so pro can provide a very frequent reading of the general uh, kind of consumption space. Um, so, so just to also want to be clear, um, the, 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 the data we are collecting are highly compliant. We don't, uh, we don't get the, we don't know when we get the data, we don't know the, the name of the merchant and we don't know the name of the individuals that are submitting any of the data. What we are getting is just totally anonymized and statistical data. Um, and, 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 uh, it, we call it exhaust data, basically the data that comes out of the, uh, kind of the, you know, the, 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 the pipeline, uh, of the normal, you know, uh, work processes. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but it's, it's highly statistical. So, so that's also something that we are, uh, we are, we are, we are pretty good at just to draw statistical, statistical insights from these highly compliant data sets. And, uh, what is the difference between, uh, the data or the, data tools your company is using or developing comparing to uh, the data company like Nielsen or some other, you know, like more traditional uh, data companies? Yeah, so, you know, um, the, the one key differentiation is we are very China focused and we are not limited to any one type of data sets. So for the companies you mentioned, some of them just focus on, say, the you know, supermarkets data. Uh, you know, some, some of, some of the companies focus on e-commerce data. But for us, uh, here at Big One Lab, we take a kind of a, a full solution, kind of a total view of the, of all the kind of data types. And we talk with all the data owners and we try to transform them into the, uh, actionable insights. So, so we have, you know, these, the, the catering data we, we talk about, we have e-commerce data. We have offline convenience store data. We have truck movement data. We have a lot of different data types to look at different industries and different sectors. So, so, and we are very much focused on China. Yeah. So I, I think that's one, one key area, a uh, key area of difference. Yeah. And you, you just mentioned that actually, uh, the offline activities is resuming China. And, you know, with the optimization of the ep epidemic control policies, so people, uh, resume their offline activities, but in this regard, has the development of some digital economy during the pandemic uh, been affected, or has the situation between, you know, uh, both online and offline become better than before? Yeah, so, um, you know, I can offer you um, insights, uh, both from the data and also from just, just my daily life, the anecdotes that I ex I've experienced. So basically what I've, been, what I've been seeing is a kind of all channel, uh, kind of recovery, you know, both offline and online. Uh, you know, only in the offline space, you know, besides the kind of the dining sector that we, we mentioned, uh, if you look at just traffic congestion, if you look at business travels, um, it's really in a kind of a full on mode. So, so for example, you know, you know, after Spring Festival, I did a lot of travel. Especially, you know, between, you know, Shanghai, Beijing, Shanghai and other cities. Um, and, you know, what we've been seeing is I haven't seen for a long time such a kind of a huge, you know, high occupancy rate 
at whatever hotels that I'm staying or, or try to stay. And, and and even for budget hotels, the, the prices are almost like double the you know the, the previous years. Um, it just really shows um, the, the the Chinese people are really hardworking and 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 there's just a lot of people uh, you know kind of going back immediately to this kind of you know full on and you know energized mode to you know to 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 work very hard and to spend hard as well. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the um, the the kind of online uh, online space. Um, you, 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 you thought, you maybe assumed that, you know, once the kind of, uh, you know, COVID eased, you, you thought the, the kind of the trend online will die down or ease down. But actually, that's not what we've been observing. We've been also observing, uh, more active, uh, movements over there. So, for example, for China's, uh, largest food delivery platform, Meituan, um, we, we, we had the data in January. And, 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 and at January data is actually, we, we saw a, a, a double digit growth as compared with, say, the February data of last year. And the reason we compared this January with last February is because, um, the spring festival effect, because this year the spring festival fell mostly in January, while last year fell mostly in February. So it's more like a, it's, it's more like an apple to apple comparison in this way. Uh, but in any case, you know, even with, um, you know, spring festival, and even with some uh, COVID complications in the beginning of January, we still see this robust growth. So, uh, so that really tells that this is really a a kind of um, kind of uh, you know recovery across the space, not just you know focusing on the offline or the online. Yeah. And uh, did you see any changes in big tech's competitive landscape in China after the epidemic? Yeah, so um, there there are. I mean, this is really the um, interesting part about about Chinese market is that um, there's always always disruptors and there's always uh, news uh, in in terms of the structural changes. Um, so you know, right now the the biggest theme along this um, is the is the competition in the kind of local services uh, sector. Between the incumbent Meituan group and the Biden's group and, and the Douyin local life services of Biden's group. Um, so since Douyin has been, uh, kind of really focused on the life services sector, we've been seeing, um, you know, double digit MOM growth every month. We've been tracking that. We've been tracking their like local life services. We've been tracking the coupon sales. And also Douyin's own delivery services. Um, so, 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 so really, like for example, compared with January to December, we see over 30% growth just in terms of the number of merchants on the network, and also in terms of the number of sales of coupons. So, so that well, to be sure, this kind of growth is coming from a low base for Douyin. Uh, but you know, because of all this huge traffic on Douyin platform. Um, this growth um, is also not surprising to many people. So a lot of people are paying attention to the kind of the market position of Meituan uh, because as you can understand, as a big listed company, there's a lot of investors of Meituan. So all of them are concerned about the competitive landscape. Um, and, and actually a lot of clients are approaching us to ask the question, you know, what kind of the long-term 
kind of structural uh, pressure that Douyin will have on, on Meituan's platform. Um, so we actually also can have some insights on that because, uh, you know, even though the local live services is a new business, um, Douyin has been doing uh, e-commerce services for a few years and been doing really successful. Um, we at Big One Lab, we've been tracking Douyin's e-commerce uh, about three years ago, as early as three years ago. And we're comparing that with, uh, we, we, we witnessed, we witnessed the, uh, the moment when Douyin was really taking aggressively the market shares from uh, incumbent player like Alibaba, especially in some core segments like, uh, you know, makeup um, and, um, and, and, uh, and food and beverages, for example, and clothing. Um, but, you know, just to join the, uh, just, just look at the experiences of, um, of this e-commerce uh, landscape change. Uh, we also are observing that, you know, it's also very hard for Douyin to be, to, to replace the Alibaba or other incumbents as the key, uh, as a central player in the e-commerce field. And this is really because, uh, you know, Douyin's, they have really, they are, they are essentially entertainment group, they are entertainment platform. And there's a lot of live streaming and there's a lot of you know, entertainment value involved with this, their model. So, you know, for certain categories like makeup, uh, that makes sense. But for some categories like, you know, digital products, home appliances, it still uh, tend to be a kind of, kind of uh, small player. Um, so, so what I'm just saying is um, different types of services are just catering to different kind of demands. Um, and, and it's not really about, you know, one player takes everything, winner take all kind of situation. It, it's really just, you know, you have different, uh, different services tailor made for different group of consumers. Um, and, 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 and so, well, on the one hand, it definitely, um, will lower the expectation for, for, you know, the market potential of Meituan. But, you know, time, you know, you know, time and time again, we've been observing this one key thing about China is that, you know, Chinese market is really huge and it's huge enough. Um, and there are a lot of, uh, you know, different lower tier cities and different lower tier, uh, different, um, you know, areas that offers huge growth to the, uh, to the, to the, to the different players. And it actually doesn't make sense to have one company to to take the whole market. Um, it's just natural that there could be a diversity of services catering to diverse needs, and 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 it's just totally natural and totally makes sense. Yeah, and uh, I also want to discuss a little bit about another apps. I don't know if you have any data about that. The a app called Xiao Hongshu, you know, the little red book. I think that that app is also experiencing a uh, 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 a robust growth during the during the epidemic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is really a one of the key beneficiaries of the epidemic. Um, but also, uh, you know, the um, you know it, just just in terms of the users' growth, in terms of the content growth. You know, right now um, they are there is being a trend in China that a lot of people, when we look for something, they look for, uh, you know, a, a tip or look for advice, look for, you know, what kind of food they want to cook or what, what kind of places they want to travel to. Xiaohongshu has really taken kind of the lead spot in terms of the go-to place. 
it's, it's almost almost like a search engine now because it's just so so much good content over there, and that content was kind of snowballed, uh, you know, during the during the you know the the height of the the COVID. Uh, for example, um, you know there are there there are um, there are places there there are segments like cooking, um, in the home living. Um, and you know, for for these segments, they are just you know attracting a lot of good contents when you are uh, you know staying at home and locked down at home. So uh, so definitely, it, it's it's a huge huge thing right now. And some people compare Xiaohongshu with Instagram in America. Do you think they, they are similar? I I think actually, uh, it seems that Xiaohongshu is developing more like functions or providing like. A, a uh, wider range of, of, of information to, to, the, to the users. Yeah, it's actually not the same thing. I mean, a lot of things now, you know, are when, when you say this is the Instagram of China, that is YouTube of China, kind of all this kind of talk missed the point now because China has been already uh, growing so sophisticated that a lot of the successful businesses in, in successful platforms in China are, are pretty much made for China. So on your on Instagram, a lot of that is about, you know, kind of showing off and have you a kind of social image. Uh, but on Xiaohongshu, really, uh, people just, uh, as you said, they, they, there's a lot of, a lot of good contents there. People search for information and they, they, they search for real, you know, practical information that helps their life, make their life better. So, so it's actually totally different things now. And during the epidemic, many people turned to outdoor activities such as camping, frisbee, and skiing as a way to stay active. And now that things are returning to normal, so I'm wondering how's people' passion for these activities uh, now? I mean, uh, ha have have they become an integral part of people's lives? Yeah, outdoor activities is also a key beneficiary of the the, the COVID. Um, we we see you know all categories of outdoor um, kind of products and services have been growing exponentially. Um, you know camping products, tents, uh, outdoor shoes, outdoor clothing, and you know interestingly when you look at you know January and recent data, these categories are still growing you know among the fastest growing categories across uh, you know you know all the categories so that kind of tells us that you know really the the, 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 the disruptions the the kind of the changes in consumer behaviors in consumer mindsets caused by covid in this specific area has been it seems more likely that it's more structural than just short-term changes many people are now adapting to a life of you know, have, spending more time outdoors and do a lot of, you know, getting close to nature and do a lot of these outdoor activities. So this could be a big fundamental um, long-term impact of COVID in China. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you mentioned that uh, you have, your companies have clients. And uh, can you tell us more about uh, what type of clients they are? Oh yeah, so definitely we 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 serve um, uh, you know institutional investors, including both hedge funds and also you know China domestic uh, mutual funds. Uh, we also serve private equity and venture capital funds to help them find the you know potential opportunities. We also serve corporate clients, 
you know, of most of the internet companies in China, you know, most of them are already our clients. We also serve a lot of consumer good companies in China. So it's, it's a diverse client base. And uh, I believe that, you know, communicating with uh, your clients also may get you, uh, you know, uh, valuable uh, insight or, or, or information about the industry. And I want to discuss a little bit about uh, China's, uh, one of the most exciting, rapidly evolving industries in China, the China's electric vehicle sector. And as subscribers of Newsletter know, uh, we have been keeping a close eye on this sector. And recently, Miao Wei, the deputy director of the Economic Committee of the National Committee of China's top political adversary body, made a statement in a panel stating that China's new energy cars are not oversupplied. So what is the latest trend in China's new energy vehicle sector, according to your observation? Are there any new developments that we should be aware of? Yeah, so it's really hot sector. Um, I, I, I don't know any... Um, in, institutional investor who is not looking at this sector. Um, and interestingly, you know, you mentioned that, you know, how we interact with our clients are also quite revealing to, um, uh, to understand the, the trends in a sector. And it's especially so in this sector. Um, so, uh, you know, in the very beginning, like say a year ago or something, when, uh, you know, when, you know, Neo, Lialto, you know, all these new brands are, you know, Getting to the capital markets um, and and starting from a low base of growth, um, people mostly just pay attention to a very um, you know uh, kind of uh, very direct metrics, which is the delivery of the, the the vehicles. You know, the more the better. The more vehicles delivered, the more market shares. So potentially, then you have a bigger mind share in in the consumer's mind. Um, so, so that's one stage. A lot of people pay attention to this kind of data for a long time. And then, you know, after certain time, the penetration rate of electric, electric vehicle has been growing. And actually, right now, China has one of the, you know, highest penetration rate of electric vehicle sales in the whole world. So, and the market become a little bit mature. And then, you know, from the institutional client's perspective, they are now paying more and more attention, not just to delivery, but also to the, the order. So, so that's the action pre-delivery, um, the preferences of consumers of different brands um, that could be indicative of actual delivery, actual sales. Um, and now we have been even seeing uh, more advanced um, signals and also more advanced uh, needs. So, for example, uh, you know, many people are questioning and wondering. Um, so, um, you know, even before, you know, a consumer make an order, what are people are thinking about the brands? What are the talks? What are the kind of opinions of different brands, different models? So now there have been clients asking us, you know, what's our perspective on it? What's the, you know, once we consume and analyze all the uh, kind of online discussions and offline discussion about a certain brand, a model, uh, which brand is really winning out and getting the best views, getting the best reviews. Um, so, uh, so, so we've been doing that. We, we, for example, um, you know, we've been looking at the kind of, uh, kind of this, uh, the comments about, uh, certain aspects of, a uh, of a brand, like, like their, um, say their, um, the quality of the uh, of the cars, 
Um, and we've been, you know, looking at the negative and positive views of different brands uh, across this metric and to compare them. So I think the lesson of that is, uh, you know, people now are paying more, uh, more and more attention to all these nuances now. Uh, it's not just about, you know, brute sales. It's more about, you know, differentiation now as the market are inviting more and more players and it's getting more crowded definitely than say a few years ago. So both the investors as well as the corporate themselves are right now their key question is, you know, not just growth, but in which area in, you know, to what kind of consumer needs and how to differentiate. Um, so, so, so that's really a, a, a change that is just happening over the last few years. Uh, but we have already seen this market has already been more mature and paying more attention to the, the, the consumers um, and, and becoming more tailor-made and becoming more uh, kind of customized. And uh, uh, do you have any like, information about how uh, Tesla is doing in China um, comparing to the domestic car makers? Um, yeah, so, um, so, it's, it's, um, so, so it's really a disruptor um, for the Chinese market. Um, actually, the, 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 the explosive growth of Chinese EV market is almost at the same time, you know, with the, you know, the first, when the first car rolled out of the Shanghai factory of Tesla. Um, it's uh, right now they are, it, Tesla is still a, a leader in many aspects um, and is also a disruptor because of their kind of unorthodox pricing strategies um, and, and the quality of their product. So it has really set up a good example for the whole market. Um, and, but we are seeing more domestic brands are, are, are catching up. Um, and it's not like Tesla is, is, is controlling the whole market. And actually we're seeing more and more domestic brands taking more shares. Um, as the technology gap, uh, become lower and lower and the price gap actually are quite competitive for many of the domestic brands. So, so thanks to Tesla, we, we are, we are thankful for Tesla, but, but the, the market is a very diverse market. Those are all, all great points. And uh, I want to go back to the 20 matters on boosting the country's data use and data economy. As a professional in the data sector, how do you see the importance of this policy? As we mentioned that the policy's main focus is to promote the compliant and efficient flow and the utilization of data and to empower the real economy. Yeah, so this is definitely a area that, you know, as a market participant in the data industry, you know, the, the area that we care a lot about. Um, we, we, we did a very thorough reading of not only the 20 measures, but also all the, you know, the previous uh, kind of regulatory documents. So, you know, this is how we, um, you know, think about this. Um, so, you know, the whole data-related regulation or government policies really started just a few years ago. Uh, you know, it started in, it, it kind of progressed in different stages. Um, so in the first stage, it's about setting up a kind of overarching legal framework. You know, before a few years ago, there was no being, there's no law about, you know, say personal data protection in China. There's no law about data security in China. So it's be, really been the work of the, uh, you know, National Internet, you know, Information Office to 
to to to set up this whole framework. Um, you know, one key area is the you know, personal data protection and the law for that, the law for personal data protection. Um, you know, a few years ago, you know, you know, when you are in this market, you you had this impression that you know probably Chinese people don't care about personal data, and there's there's just really no such thing about protection of personal data. But then problems happen. Uh, a lot of you know bad people they are using personal data to to do some you know bad stuff and profiting from that without you know personal permission. So then that's where the society comes to the view that okay personal data is important. Uh, you have to have a legal framework for that. And and now what you are seeing is uh, now it's been a a just just in a span of a few years we come from you know oblivious to personal data to the point that you know we are very sensitive about that um, and there's a lot of policies regulation in place so I think this is very positive you need to have a fundamental framework a legal framework to set up the boundaries to set up the rules um, and that's the first stage and China has uh, kind of completed this first stage from 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 nothing to a a, a generally robust framework. And then we are now actually in the second stage. Um, this is when, I think this is something that is less appreciated around the world about China, is that um, the Chinese government is not just to, you know, here to regulate data industry. Um, it's actually also seeing data industry and what we call the, the data factor as a key factor of production and is a key sector of economy. And so once you have a kind of rule framework in place, then we're now moving to the stage where, um, you know, supportive policies, uh, you know, to the data industry are being rolled out. And 20 measures are, uh, you know, have been rolled out under this kind of context. If you pay attention, 20 measures were actually not, you know, uh, kind of proposed by the, 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 the Internet office, which is a key regulator of data internet industry. But by the National uh, Commission for Development and Resource uh, Reform, um, and, and that government uh, institution is there to promote economy, to promote industries. Um, so, so it's really about um, now we have a mature data industry. We want to have make it more prosperous, and we want to have ways to generate more value for the society. So, so this is a. Um, this is a, I think, a very interesting stage we are in now, um, and, and I feel really excited to be uh, in this stage of the uh, industry. And uh, could you uh, be more clear about, I mean, explain to the uh, listeners the types of data property rights? I mean, because it's it's a new thing to some people, and uh, I believe that people want to. Uh, have more uh, better understanding about what what real property rights they have, data property rights they have. Yeah, this is this is a very good question. I mean, um, you know, when you have this legal framework, and when, when you see data as a production factor, you, you and there's something of value, then you definitely cannot avoid who owns the data, right? Um, but it's also quite you know complex because. Data is not a physical object. It's not a kind of piece of land. It's not just like one thing there. Um, the value of data depends on how do you use it. Data itself has no value. You cannot live in data. You cannot eat data, right? You cannot 
really like you know move places with data. It's it's a very intangible thing and depends on how you use it and and it has different values in different segments, different ways, different scenarios. So we can you know the general direction now in China is not to define data as a static thing. Um, there is really the ownership property rights, the ownership rights of data, but also there are rights of usage, the rights of um, kind of you know making this thing more valuable. And and so each basically the general principle is any player that can provide an extra differentiated social and economic value out of data um, enjoy a share of the rights. Um, so I think that's very good. That that's that's open-minded and more realistic view of property rights uh, in in China um, in data industry in China is very helpful. For for the all kinds of market market participants. And uh, what challenges do the data industry might face in China? Um, there are some, um, and it's you know even with the all the regulations and with all the supported policies, there are definitely challenges we are facing. Um, so one thing I can think of immediately is uh, you know a lot of areas still not defined, uh, are gray areas. I mean, you know, for, for these areas, it's even kind of a gray area around the world. There are a lot of, you know, you know, there's a reason that data is such a and such a kind of frontier of um, all the regulations is really, you know, around the world is just a lot of undefined areas. So, for example, um, the, 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 the kind of ownership of uh, publicly available data. Right. So, for example, uh, you know, a lot of e-commerce companies in China um, they are open to everyone to use, and on their platform they are showing you know many data, much data, like say you know number of sales for different products, the prices, you know all these are publicly available. Each and everyone have access to it, and there's no differentiated. You don't have to pay to get this data. But then you know who owns that data? Um, is is just is is that the property of say the internet companies themselves? Um, you know, some people like us will argue back that no, because it's publicly available, so everyone can have access to it. Um, so there could be some potential for argument over there. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we could all are also argue that this data actually doesn't belong to anyone except the original uh, consumer, the individuals. Um, their action, you know, create this data. You know, right, so so you have this space where there are a lot of stakeholders that could have legitimate claims to 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 the data. Um, so uh, so so that's a key 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 uh, you know challenges here. Uh, there's no set rules. There's no you know one rule that can you know make everyone happy. Um, I and, and to me personally, I am of the view that uh, data actually becomes to every individual participant in the in, in the industry and especially belongs to the every individuals every consumers um, at the end of the day all data comes from each individual's activity in an ideal world that I can imagine um, everyone you know through their kind of online footprints they're generating data but then at the same time they are also able to extract value from their own data by controlling the access to their own data 
and selling their own data based on their own intention and decision. And 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 that's as opposed to the current model where a few companies they kind of centralizing all the data from the users for free and profit over that. Um, and I think you know I think these the ideal world the ideal model that uh, that I've just described is the way to go. And we are moving closely we're we're moving more and more to that direction. Yeah. And and also there's another problem about say you know pricing of data. Um uh, it's actually also a very highly complex uh issue. Um you know in China a lot of places are setting up the so-called data exchanges uh, supported by the government. Um uh, but data exchanges is something that's that's really complex. It's it's not typical kind of exchanges that you imagine like stock exchanges. Uh, again, a data is not a a one you know item, one you know clearly defined item that can be freely traded. Um, um, it, the data you know as I just said, it just have different values in different scenarios. You know, looking this way it has this kind of value. Look using it that way. Uh, you have that kind of value, um, so you, you, it's really hard to 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 have a real uh, exchange in the real sense for data. So more often, you are, what you are saying is, um, you know, all these exchanges, so-called exchanges, are really just like a a listing place for different kind of data types. But actual transactions are still taking kind of offline. So uh, so 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 when it comes to pricing of the data, it's a very opaque market. And and it actually takes a lot of people, a lot of companies like us, like Big One Lab, to to really understand this and to bridge the gap and to to make it to work. Um, and 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 we and pricing really comes out of you know the the, the actual uh, underground transactions um, that are you know um, that are that are that are taking place. Um, so so it's really hard to have a like a like a like a you know exchange in the normal sense. In order for the value to be generated, yeah. And uh, how do you how do you compare the data, the alternative data-driven business intelligence uh, in the United States and in China? Yeah, so um, I think the the overall the West has a a, a very um, a kind of an enviable position in terms of um, you know how they innovate and utilize the data. Uh, there's a lot of ways that are just not possible in China. For example, um, you know, in, in the United States, uh, a common way to have data is to create an email app where you get all the email receipts from the users and you can use them anonymously. Uh, you don't, you don't, you don't sell the data of each individual person. We call it personally identifiable information or PII. You don't sell that. You aggregate them. You do a statistical analysis, and you provide valuable insights about any industry, right? So, so that's something that's really cool, um, and 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 that's really because uh, in 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 over there, people have already have a strong uh, kind of uh, kind of rule and and strong uh, you know uh, kind of uh, you know understanding of data protection in place, and. And that just help us to enable uh, these kind of innovation. Um, while while in China, um, the we are really at the early stage of this. I mean, we just just you know it's barely a few years passed before 
we we had our first data production law, right? So it's really at the early stage, and 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 right now because of all these misuses of personal data in the first place, now we are kind of moving in the direction of um, you know heavy regulation, and just to kind of control the previous uh, rampant misuses of personal data. And but the side effect of that was people are becoming oversensitive to data protection. There are areas that could be compliant and should be compliant. But then, you know, people, when they think about data, when they talk about data, they, they just instinctively think of that as something, you know, something untouchable. Um, there are a lot of innovations um, that could not happen because people are still have this over-sensitive uh, mindset. Mm, I'm hopeful about that. I'm hopeful about innovation in the field. But it will take time. It will take time for the industry to get more mature, and people are becoming more kind of uh, becoming more uh, you know understanding of the nuances of the boundaries, and and at that time we will have a more kind of prosperous industry uh, around data. Yeah, everything takes time. All right, let, let's move on to recommendations. We, we invite every guest of our podcast to recommend something to our listeners. It can be a book, a movie, a TV series, a podcast, or even a video game. So, Robert, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so, uh, you know, right now, if, I, if you ask me this question, I definitely will recommend the, 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 the TV series of the three-body problem. Um, uh, that this is this um, you know uh, I, I really like this show. It's really tackling a very difficult subject. Uh, people tend to not put to believe that you know this the, the, this this masterpiece three body pr- problem can be translated and transformed into a say a TV series of movie. But but I think the current this TV series really has done an incredible job. Um, and I think one thing that's really interesting is. Um, you know, on the books, there are a lot of nuances. There are a lot of, you know, emotions um, that's not really well captured by the book. But but the TV series, you know, they, they go a step for, further in terms of that, setting up this environment, setting up this kind of psychological and emotional uh, context. So, uh, you know, I, I love the screenplay. I love the uh, how they treat their kind of cameras. And also the music is a big highlight. There's a lot of original music. Um, it's, 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 it's really, uh, it's, it's kind of really showed to the world that, uh, you know, it's similar with say the, the movie Wandering Earth and Wandering Earth 2. It kind of shows to the world that, that China has becoming quite mature and advanced in terms of, you know, this, this hard sci-fi genre uh, in producing movies and TV shows about that. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, I have seen some, I think, three or four episodes of, of, of the uh, Three Broadly Problems TV series, and uh, it is a well-made play. I'm also a big fan of, of the Three Broadly Problem. I read the book, listened to the audiobook, and watched the two animation series of it. And I, I have a question for you. What was your favorite part or character of, in the Three Broadly Problem? <laughs> I mean, uh, there, there are really a lot. Um, and but I was I have to admit the the moment that really strikes me, um, and spoiler alert, okay, uh, is is the the second part of the book. I mean the second part of the trilogy, the Dark Forest, when that little you know water drop, uh, just destroy the hope and you know everything 
of human civilization. Um, and, and, and that's where I have all those goosebumps when I read the books. And, and that's where, you know, that's where the author Liu Cixin really did a great job in just describing the kind of despair and the kind of the, the huge, uh, you know, astronomical level of gap between uh, civilizations. And that's, that's really magnificent. Um, it's conveyed very convincingly. Uh, and I really love that part. Yeah, I also love that part. A astronomical is a key word. And, and my favorite part is how a character named Stinger, Gezhe, a high intelligence alien creature, used a bio-directional foil, Xiangbu, to destroy the whole solar system. And that, that part just show, shows how humans are so small in this big and vast universe. Yeah, I mean, I cannot really wrap my mind around that thing. Uh, it it sometimes occurred to me that you have to have some kind of PhD degree to in order to really understand in this book. So, but but that's that's yeah. There's a lot of these kind of amazing moments in, in the in the trilogy. Yeah. So uh, check out the Three Body Problems TV series. It's heaven. Uh, so Robert, thank you once again. That that was just terrific. Thank you for being our first guest. It's an honor to have you here, and uh, I hope one day we can maybe co-host some of this show because I believe your expertise will definitely help international listeners to better understand China. Oh, I mean, yeah, thanks, thanks. Uh, I'll, I'll be, you know, I, I, I will very, will be very honored to to be able to co-host. Uh, definitely, yeah. Thank you, Robert. Re really enjoyed having you here. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. The Ginger River Radio Podcast is a part of the GR Media Outlet. Our show is produced and edited by me, Jiang Jiang, Yu Liaojie from Shanghai International Studies University, and Jia Yuxuan from Beijing Foreign Studies University. For cooperation, investing, or feedback, email me directly at jiangjiang, J-I-A-N-G-J-I-A-N-G, at gingerriver.com, or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We would be delighted if you would recommend our podcast or newsletter to others if you find it helpful. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Take care.